This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Let's have a look at today's lineup. There's a strong Dunn Stores influence from top to bottom, starting with selected boxes of bottled beer and cider like Heineken and Boomers from just €18.72. Half-price Pringles are a very welcome inclusion indeed. 10 or 50 grocery vouchers doing their bit at the till as usual. All that's left to do now is enjoy the football. Dunn Stores, always better value. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher can be used on the next grocery shop of €50 Euro or more. Voucher excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly. Life's full of things we can't depend on Like the Irish weather Predictably unpredictable When you're cutting it fine But the tractor in front is out for the day No winner of this week's You know what So much for lucky seven But some things you can depend on Like in home heating Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil Are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home Now and into the future For home heating you can depend on See CertaIreland.ie what would you do if a singular moment changed your life forever? This Is Actually Happening is a weekly podcast from Wondery that features extraordinary true stories of life-changing events told by the people who lived them. In a recent episode, you'll hear from a man who started smoking weed as a young kid while his mom was at choir practice. Over time, his drug use snowballed into a violent life of crime in New York City selling and using crack. Then, in a moment of desperation, he finally sees a way to a better life. We've all had powerful moments in our lives that have given us the feeling of, nothing is ever going to be the same. I've been listening to this show for years because I love true stories, and I'm inspired by what human beings can push themselves to endure. Listen to This Is Actually Happening on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. Washington Township, a suburb just outside of Detroit, Michigan, was started as Westview Orchards in 1813. It became Washington Township in 1927 and is currently the home of the historic Octagon House, which was built in 1860 by Lauren Andrus. It's also home to the Stony Creek Metro Park, a 4,461-acre park filled with forests, hills, prairies, and swamps. People can go there and enjoy activities such as golf, picnics, ice skating, mountain biking, swimming, sports, and hiking or running on more than 30 combined miles of dirt and paved paths. Stephen Grant was having a hard time dealing with his wife being the main breadwinner of the home, 
She had a great paying job and traveled frequently, but the temptations of other women made Stephen believe he may be better off without her. This is Monsters. Stephen Grant was born on January 18, 1970, to Al and Susan Grant. He had one older sister, Kelly, and the family lived in the Detroit suburb Sterling Heights. Al was an engineer with his own business, U.S. Grant Manufacturing Incorporated. Stephen described his childhood as being idyllic in one aspect, describing how he had a tight group of friends who were all still friends as adults. He also described how his parents argued frequently and loudly as he was growing up. It would turn out that only one of those statements was true. People that knew him as a child said that he was more of an oddball loner. In September of 1984, Susan filed for divorce, citing, quote, The objects of matrimony have been destroyed and there remains no likelihood that the marriage can be preserved, end quote. The divorce was finalized in April of 1985, and though Susan got physical custody of both kids, Kelly chose to live with Al while Stephen remained with his mother. They continued living in the house while Al moved out with his daughter. Once in high school, Stephen had a close friend who said he never talked about his parents or their divorce. He said Stephen was pretty high-strung and his main interests were cars and weapons. Stephen would regularly go into the woods behind his house and shoot guns. The friend said that Stephen had a tendency to exaggerate, like claiming he caught a huge fish when he only caught a small fish. This carried over to his relationships with girls as well. When Stephen got a job working at a local Mexican restaurant, he met a girl named Barbara Haney, who attended a different high school. He asked her to his homecoming dance, and she agreed to go. On the date, he told her he was a basketball star at his school, something he thought would impress her. It turned out that her father was a counselor at Stephen's school, and when she mentioned his claim at home, he had to break the news that Stephen wasn't even on the team. She didn't want to date someone who lied, so she broke it off with him. In 1989, Stephen was pulled over for going 70 miles per hour in a 45-mile-per-hour zone. When the officer approached the vehicle, he could see a pouch that contained an unloaded Colt pistol that Stephen did not have a permit for. The young man was arrested for reckless driving and carrying a concealed weapon, but he pleaded guilty to a lesser charge and was given a $500 fine. Tara DeStramp was born on June 28, 1972 to Gerald and Mary DeStramp. Gerald and Mary were young newlyweds who had just married six months prior. They lived in Escanaba, in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Gerald, who went by Dusty, was a Vietnam veteran who was honorably discharged in 1972, and he began working as a wastewater treatment operator. Mary had worked as a dental assistant until becoming a mother. In 1974, Dusty and Mary purchased a homestead in Rock, which was just north of Escanaba and closer to Dusty's work. The father remodeled the cabin that came with the property to accommodate the family. In March of 1974, the d welcomed another daughter, Alicia. Growing up, the girls spent much of their time together. They took riding lessons, joined the 4-H club, and raised many animals on the farm. Sheep, cows, chickens, pigs, and rabbits. Once, Tara won the title of Grand Champion Market Hog at the Upper Peninsula State Fair. Tara was also part of a four-girl team that won the state BB gun champion. In high school, Tara was a straight-A student with big 80s hair who played in the band and was on the cheerleading squad. She played basketball and ran track. She was one of the few students who didn't party. 
After working for a local shoe store, she became interested in business and marketing and wanted to go to university, but her parents talked her into staying in the area and going to community college. After getting an associate's degree in business in 1992, Tara moved to East Lansing to attend Michigan State University. In her journal, Tara wrote that she intentionally went to a university far from home to establish her independence. By the time Tara was at university, Stephen had dropped out of college and was working as an aide for then-state Senator Jack Faxon. He was introduced to Tara at a party and soon realized that they both lived in the same apartment complex. Stephen was interested in a relationship right away and asked Tara out, but she turned him down. They remained friends for a while, during which time Stephen showed her around the area. When Tara's grandmother died, she took a flight up to Escanaba for the funeral, so Stephen drove his car all the way up there and surprised her. Even though they weren't dating and he never met her grandmother, he told her father that he felt he should be there to support her. He claimed that Rusty offered him to stay at their house, but he didn't want to impose, so he drove back south that night. According to Stephen, Tara called him the next morning and told him she was in love with him. Once Tara was back, the two began dating and eventually Tara moved into Stephen's apartment. In the 1994 elections, Democrats lost a lot of positions, which made the job market in Democratic politics light. Stephen ended up going to work at his father's tool and dye shop. This would be Stephen's fallback job throughout his life. Once Tara had her business degree, she had trouble finding a job and began working for a temp service. That service eventually placed her in a job at Morrison Knudsen. Even though the construction company was known for building well-known landmarks such as the Hoover Dam and the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, in 1995 they were struggling to stay afloat. They would finally be bought out by Washington Group International and they would hire Tara on permanently. She would work for the company for the next decade. Stephen and Tara got married on September 28, 1996 in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. They bought a house in Shelby Township, north of Detroit. Friends said that they always seemed like the perfect couple. Stephen was always in control of the situation, planning out every activity, and Tara always seemed happy with whatever they were doing. Some people felt that Stephen's controlling nature was way too much, though. The Grant's brother-in-law, Eric Standifer, Alicia's husband, said that Stephen always ruined family events with his behavior. They eventually just stopped planning family events together. Stephen and Tara had their first child, a daughter named Lindsay, in November of 2000. Stephen wasn't working full-time, so he was able to take care of the baby when Tara had to return to work. According to Stephen, Tara had gone in to get a shot that was supposed to be a form of birth control, but she was actually given a flu shot instead. Due to that, Tara found out she was pregnant again in 2002, but they weren't expecting to have another baby so soon. Ian was born in November of 2002. By now, Tara was traveling for work and Stephen felt like taking care of a toddler and a newborn was too much, so the Grants began hiring au pairs. An au pair is a young woman from another country who agrees to assist with the care of a family's children in exchange for a place to stay and an allowance in the host country. They're usually placed through agencies who get permission from the immigration office for the au pairs to be considered visitors. Many of the women also attend college while in the host country. Tara believed having a foreigner look after the children would add culture to their lives. Some of the au pairs would teach the children their primary language. Of course, all that Stephen cared about was that the au pair was young and attractive. Christmas is the season of giving, but it can be difficult to know who on your list wants what. 
Save yourself the guesswork by giving the gift of choice. Whether you're buying for the foodie, fashionista or home bird of the family, they'll love a Dunn Stores gift card. They can choose from everything we have in store and online, from fashion to homewares to groceries. It's the perfect choice to make this Christmas. Visit dunstores.com for details. Make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Life's full of things we can't depend on, like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on. See CertaIreland.ie Tara expected a lot of the children. She had Stephen taking them to ballet and tutoring. She wanted them to be all that they could be and even wrote a note for herself to remember that they're just children. She reminded herself to not be so critical. By 2006, Stephen and Tara's relationship was strained. Stephen wasn't comfortable with Tara being the sole breadwinner. Working part-time at his father's machine shop, he made less in a year than Tara's yearly bonus. On top of that, she had a six-figure income and was traveling often, most recently taking an assignment in Puerto Rico. She worked in an office in San Juan and flew home on the weekends. Her salary had made it possible for them to move to the more upscale Washington Township area. Stephen would frequent the Buffalo Wild Wings bar by his father's shop, but the servers never quite knew what to expect from him. Sometimes he'd be in a great mood. He'd play trivia at the bar and pay for the meals of veterans. Other times he would complain about his father and Tara's family. Then there were times when Stephen would tell the staff he was really a covert operative for Tara's employer. He would tell them that he actually worked for Tara. He would also tell the staff at the restaurant that his au pairs were all wild about their Mr. Mom employer. He claimed that one undressed in front of the window for him, he was most likely peeping without her knowledge, and another would wear skimpy outfits for him. Stephen kept no secrets about his wandering eye to the staff of Buffalo Wild Wings. He would flirt with the waitresses there and tell them that he cheated on his wife. He claimed to have had sex with a woman he met at an MSU game. When people asked him if he ever felt guilty, he'd say, quote, I'm going to hell anyway, I'm an atheist, end quote. Nobody knows if those stories that Stephen told were true. Everyone seemed to be well aware that he lied constantly. Even though Stephen seemed completely willing to cheat on his wife, he would become furious at the thought that she might be cheating on him. Once he got into Tara's emails and found some messages between her and an ex-boyfriend from the Upper Peninsula, the emails must not have been totally incriminating because Stephen began emailing the man, pretending to be Tara, trying to get him to say something that would prove she was cheating. He told this to one of the waitresses at the Buffalo Wild Wings and said he eventually identified himself, sending him an email threatening to hurt him. That was his claim, but again, Stephen was known for constant lying. Stephen would regularly get mad at the au pairs for one thing or another and, quote-unquote, send them back. People said that's how he referred to it, like they were property. Tara's sister and brother-in-law said that most of them actually quit after a few weeks, not being able to deal with Stephen. Eventually, they got a new, beautiful 19-year-old German au pair named Verena. Stephen was immediately smitten with her. On Wednesday, February 14, 2007, Stephen Grant arrived at the Macomb County Sheriff's Office where he was greeted by Deputy William Hughes. 
Stephen told the deputy that he wanted to file a missing persons report. He claimed that he hadn't heard from Tara since she had gotten angry at him and stormed out of the house the previous Friday, nearly five days ago. Immediately, Deputy Hughes was suspicious of Stephen. Not only had he waited way too long to report his wife missing, but he also had a scabbed-over scratch on his nose and he was relaying information out of a notebook. Before he even started talking to the deputy, he scanned through the notebook. It felt obvious that he was trying to keep his story straight. Stephen told the deputy that he was a stay-at-home dad who worked part-time in his father's shop and that Tara worked in Puerto Rico, but came home for the weekends. He explained that he wasn't happy with his wife's regular absences from the home and they had gotten into an argument on February 9th. Tara had called him from the Newark airport to let him know that her flight was delayed due to weather, and she told him that she was returning to Puerto Rico on Sunday instead of Monday. That news turned into an argument about how much she's gone. Once Tara finally got home, Stephen said they continued fighting for about 20 minutes. He claimed to have told her it wasn't fair to the kids for her to only come home a few days a week. Supposedly, Tara said tough before she made a call and was picked up by a black sedan. Stephen said he assumed it was the airport car service. Deputy Hughes asked Stephen why he waited five days to report her missing, and he said that her employer told him to wait. He explained that he had called her cell phone over the weekend and got no response. On Monday, he called her boss and learned that she hadn't shown up for work, but the man said that they needed to have a company meeting before he called the police. Stephen said that he also called her mother and sister, but neither of them had seen Tara. Stephen already had a theory as to what had happened to his wife. He said that Washington Group demilitarized chemical weapons, and he believed that Tara had been kidnapped by terrorists and may have been exposed to nerve gas. Deputy Hughes was not convinced. Stephen then started telling the deputy about Verena. Deputy Hughes asked her age and then asked Stephen if he was having a physical relationship with her. The deputy said that Stephen just leaned back in his chair and said, quote, she'll never tell, end quote, with a big smile on his face. The deputy was convinced that Stephen was involved and thought he could come into the sheriff's headquarters, fill out a missing persons report, and eliminate himself as a suspect. When Stephen was finally finished rambling on about anything he could think of, Deputy Hughes told him that detectives would be in touch. Sergeant Brian Kozlowski was the lead detective on the case, and Sergeant Pam McLean was co-lead. They began making calls to people who were close to Tara. When they talked to her boss, who was at his office in San Juan, he told detectives that Tara was scheduled to fly back to Puerto Rico on Monday the 12th. This contradicted Stephen's claim that she was flying back early. He explained that he knew Tara well, and he didn't believe that she would walk out on her family like Stephen was claiming. Washington Group Security confirmed that there was no activity on Tara's work email, her cell phone, or her corporate credit card any time after Friday, February 9th. Next, they talked to Tara's sister, Alicia, who told them that Stephen had called her the day before and left a message that said, quote, Can you call me when you get a minute? It's no big deal. End quote. When she called him back a few minutes later, he told her that Tara was missing. You know, no big deal. Then he told her, quote, I wouldn't be surprised if she's shacked up in a motel with some guy somewhere, end quote. Detectives Kozlowski and McLean arrived at Stephen's house at about 5.30 p.m. Detective Kozlowski spoke with Stephen, while Detective McLean took Verena aside and spoke with her. Stephen's story immediately changed. 
he told the detective that Tara was planning to return to Puerto Rico on Monday, which now matched what her boss had said, but not his initial statement to Deputy Hughes. Kozlowski looked in their bedroom and watched Stephen as he logged into their bank and credit card accounts. The detective noted that there had been no activity by Tara on any account, but he also noted how badly Stephen was shaking as he was trying to control the mouse. Then they went into the garage where the detective looked at both Tara's Isuzu Trooper and Stephen's Jeep Commander. He noticed that there were some notebooks in the back of Tara's vehicle that had some work-related to-do lists on them. He thought it was strange that she would leave without them. The investigators inquired about the scratch on his nose, and he claimed it happened while he was working at his father's machine shop. He also showed them a scratch on his hand, which he claimed was from trying to start a snowblower, and a bruise on his leg, which he wasn't sure how he got. When they asked him how their marriage was, he claimed that he was faithful, but that Tara had had an affair previously, information that doesn't match what he told the waitress at Buffalo Wild Wings. Verena did not seem interested in talking to Detective McLean, but she told her that she had gone out dancing with some other au pairs on Friday night. She got back home at about 11.30 p.m., and when she came in, Stephen told her that he and Tara had gotten into an argument earlier that evening, and she left. Verena confirmed that it was very strange for Tara to not call and check on the kids for more than a day. Verena was in a hurry to meet some friends, and when she left, Detective McLean talked to Lindsay. Lindsay gave her a tour of the house, and when they went into the master bedroom, the detective noticed that none of Tara's clothes or shoes were missing from the closet. She also noted that there were three pairs of glasses on the nightstand, things that you would take with you if you were going to be away. As the investigators were leaving, they asked if Stephen would come back to the station to answer some more questions. Instead of answering, he said, quote, Well, you don't think I did something to my wife, do you? End quote. Then he broke down and started crying. Both detectives would confirm to each other later that they were positive he had killed her. Pop quiz. What can you buy for $3.99? Not a latte. But for less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can get all your favorite music ad-free. While other streaming services jack up their prices, Live One's membership is only $3.99 per month. And you can lock in that price for a full year. Join now to get the best deal in music with zero ads, unlimited skips, and maximum audio quality. Get the music you love at a price that fits into your budget with Live One Plus. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Okay, so presents. Check. Decorations. Uh, check. Christmas clothes. Yep, check. The turkey. You forgot the turkey. Dunn Stores has extended opening hours over the Christmas season, so you'll have plenty of time to get all those little jobs done. Opening times may vary. Check your Dunn Stores app or dunnstores.com for more info. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. The following morning, the Sheriff's Office would receive a fax from the law office of David Green. It read, quote, Because of the tone of your February 14, 2007 interrogation of Mr. Grant at his home, it is my humble opinion that it is necessary for me to provide a buffer between your department and Mr. Grant. Just as Mr. Grant answered all of your questions last night, he will continue to answer all of your questions in the future. I believe it is necessary, however, so that there are no misunderstandings, that all of your future questions be submitted in writing, which will, in turn, be immediately answered in writing. End quote. It seemed that Stephen would only communicate with the sheriff's department via fax from his lawyer's office. 
Stephen never seemed to improve his driving since his 1989 arrest. He had had his license suspended multiple times for failing to pay speeding tickets and for not paying for a ticket he received for running a red light. He actually still had a suspended license at the time that Tara went missing. On Thursday, February 16th, Stephen failed to signal as he turned and was pulled over just after 2 p.m. When the deputy ran his ID, he learned that the man was driving with a suspended license and had no choice but to arrest him. He was held for a short amount of time and questioned before being released. According to Stephen, he was held for hours and harshly interrogated. On February 20th, investigators uncovered emails that Stephen had sent to an ex-girlfriend named Dina Hardy. In the messages, he said that he was positive that Tara was having an affair with her boss, and he told the ex that he wanted to see her naked. Phone records also showed that no calls had been made on Tara's phone during the time on Friday night when Stephen claimed that Tara had called someone shortly before she left. On February 22nd, the Sheriff's Department announced that they now considered Tara's disappearance the result of foul play. They proceeded with the investigation with the understanding that they may be looking for a body. Detectives noticed that Stephen brought up the Stony Creek Metro Park Nature Preserve quite frequently, so they organized a search of the area. It was a great area for the community, being a 4,400-acre nature preserve. It wasn't so great for the investigation, though, because it was a 4,400-acre nature preserve. At one point, a police plane thought they spotted a body, but it turned out to be a deer carcass. After a day of scouring the area, they ended the search with nothing. Stephen became more and more unhelpful as the investigation went on. He spent as much time as he could in front of media cameras, claiming the police were abusing him and treating him unfairly. He claimed to have hired his own private investigator to look into his wife's disappearance, a former FBI agent, but that the Sheriff's Department refused to give him any information about the case. The Sheriff's Department was quick to respond that they had never been contacted by any private investigator. They would find out later that that was because there was no private investigator. He also started speaking negatively of Tara. In one interview, when he was asked to describe Tara as a mother, he said, quote, She loves her kids, but you know, most mothers don't travel five days a week. I've heard comments from people, what kind of mother would leave their babies all week long? She's gone five days a week. She's there on weekends, but it wasn't weird for her to come in, kiss the kids, and leave again. Well, I'm sorry, is that a good mother? No, it's not. It's a bad mother. End quote. Get the fuck out of here. How many fathers are in the military or travel for work, which is seen as perfectly acceptable? You mean a woman doing the exact same thing as a bad mother? Give me a break. This was a very sad attempt to make Tara look like she didn't care about her kids to make it seem more plausible that she would just abandon them and take off. On February 28th, Sheila Werner was hiking in an area of the Stony Creek Metro Park. Not only was she hiking to take in the surrounding nature, but she was also picking up garbage along the way. Suddenly, she spotted a plastic bag that seemed to contain blood. When she found a few other bags with rubber gloves and metal shavings in them, she picked up the bags and took them to her house, where she called the sheriff's office. When the deputy arrived at her house, she took him back out to the spot where she found it. Detectives, not wanting to get their hopes up, assumed that Sheila had found something that was left by poachers, most likely remnants from a deer kill. The metal shavings could have easily come from the machine shop where Stephen worked, but it was Detroit, the heart of America's auto manufacturing industry, so they could have come from anywhere. 
They also found some animal hairs in the bag, and they sent them to the lab with the blood. The blood was tested and confirmed to be human. The animal hairs were a visual match for the Grant's dog, Bentley. This was enough for the sheriff's department to get a warrant to search the house and the machine shop. On March 2nd, when the sheriff's department arrived at the Grant home to conduct a search, Stephen was just pulling into his driveway. A news station was already on site, waiting for Stephen to conduct yet another interview. Stephen was constantly in the news doing interviews while authorities were searching for his missing wife, but these weren't all initiated by the media. The reporter on site that day said he was receiving up to five calls a day from Stephen trying to set up an interview. Since authorities only had a search warrant, Stephen was free to leave, so he put a leash on Bentley and walked down the street where he called a friend to pick him up. In the car, Stephen said he wanted to go visit his kids, who were staying with relatives, so the friend loaned him his yellow Dodge pickup truck. As a team of crime scene techs were scouring the house, Detectives Kozlowski and McLean stayed in the garage, trying to keep out of the way. As they were talking about the case, Kozlowski noticed a green plastic tote that seemed out of place. It had the words, Boy's Clothes, written on it, and when he pulled the lid off, inside was a black garbage bag. When he opened the bag, he saw flesh, blood, and the black fabric of a bra. When the contents of the plastic tub were removed, what was there was a woman's torso. No legs, no arms, no head. There were also leaves and twigs stuck to the torso, which made it clear that Stephen had gone out to Stony Creek Metro Park and retrieved the remains. He must have dumped them and got worried they would search the park and brought them back to his house. The following morning, over a hundred people went back out to Stony Creek Metro Park to search for more of Tara's remains. More snow had melted, so they were hopeful that they'd have better results. Throughout the day, the team found one body part after another, a thigh, then her head. The medical examiner was brought in and documented the findings as they happened. The cold weather had preserved the remains, so there was no doubt that they belonged to Tara. A right hand was found, and then a femur bone, which had been picked clean by animals. Soon, they found a left hand and a lower leg. Stephen clearly knew that the investigators would find Tara's remains in his house and used his friend's vehicle to flee. He had no intention of seeing his kids. He headed north in the borrowed truck and snuck into his sister Kelly's house. He tried to find a gun but failed, so he stole a bottle of Vicodin and left Bentley at the house before driving to Lansing. On the way, he stopped and picked up a bottle of Jack Daniels, a toy cap gun, and a black marker. He used the marker to color the toy's red safety tip black, clearly planning a suicide by cop. Authorities were tracking Stephen through his store purchases and an ATM withdrawal, but when he made a call to his sister on his cell phone, they were able to ping his location even closer. When Stephen got to northern Michigan's Wilderness State Park, he called his sister again and told her where he was. She then called the sheriff and told them. Wilderness State Park was in Emmett County, and sheriffs there hurried to the area and began searching for Stephen. They had an ambulance, EMTs, and even a Coast Guard helicopter with night vision. They eventually spotted the bright yellow Dodge truck parked, blocking traffic, near a trail entrance. Along the path, authorities found a trail of things left behind by Stephen. A watch, then a toy gun, the Jack Daniels bottle, a notebook, a candy bar, and a pair of pliers. With the help of the helicopter's searchlight, a tactical team found Stephen, barefoot, without a coat, 
curled up under a tree at 6.37 a.m. Officers half-carried, half-dragged Stephen out of the wooded area to an area where he could be lifted into the helicopter. He was transported to Harbor Springs Airport and then taken to Northern Michigan Hospital in Petoskey by ambulance, where he was treated for frostbite, hypothermia, and possible ingestion of narcotics. He would later tell a nurse that he took the five Vicodin that he had stolen and 16 Benadryl tablets. When he was admitted to the hospital, his core temperature was 87.8 degrees, even after the EMTs had put blankets and heaters on him for the trip. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Did you hear that? Wine and champagne is 20% off. And that? Medium selection boxes like Skittles and Cadbury mix and match any three for five euro. 20 and 24 can boxes of Coke, Diet Coke and Coke Zero are just 12 euro. Have you got any 10 off 50s? And that's the sound of better value. Every week leading up to Christmas, there's new savings to be had. Dunn stores make Christmas for everyone. Terms and conditions apply. Vouching abuse to next grocery shop of 50 euro or more. Vouching excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly. Once the news announced that Stephen Grant had been apprehended in the woods in the Wilderness State Park, Stephen's lawyer announced that he was dropping the murderer as a client. Stephen didn't know that his lawyer quit until he asked to speak with him after his arrest, to which he was informed that he was currently Sand's lawyer. Detectives Kozlowski and McLean made the four-hour drive to the Northern Michigan Hospital so they could interview Stephen. They spent the beginning of the interview making sure that Stephen understood that he was under arrest and he understood his rights. Stephen wanted to know if they were charging him with first or second degree murder or manslaughter, but Kozlowski explained that he was currently arrested on a warrant for open murder and the district attorney would make a determination of the level of murder which he would be charged. Stephen said that his story actually started on Thursday, February 8th. He told the detectives about how Tara had called him from Puerto Rico that evening, and they had a quick chat about their evening plans. Stephen was going to meet a friend at a bar, and Tara was going to stay in and have dinner. Eventually, Stephen realized that he had his days mixed up and wasn't supposed to meet the friend that night, and when he called Tara back to let her know his plans had changed, she was at the bar in the hotel. He said he thought it was weird because she never went to the bar, but she told him she was talking to an older couple and that was it. His explanation isn't very detailed, so it's unclear why he needed to call her back and let her know he was staying home. Maybe they regularly had dinner together while on the phone with each other? It's unknown because this part of the story doesn't come back up again during his confession. Its only relevance may be to point out that she had been in a bar as a possible sign that she was having an affair. He said the following day he talked to her a few times throughout the day. He said that they were normal conversations, and though the idea that she traveled too much came up, they didn't argue. She called him from the airport in Newark, New Jersey, and said her layover flight was delayed and she was going to be home late. When she finally arrived home, she unpacked and the couple were getting ready for bed when they started arguing about her travel schedule. She informed him that she needed to go back to Puerto Rico on Sunday to start preparing for a project with her boss. When Stephen told her that she spends too much time with her boss, he claimed that she told him to fuck off. 
According to Stephen, she said, quote, Too bad. I gotta do what I have to do in my job, and it's none of your business. End quote. So far, none of this matches what Stephen told the deputy when he reported her missing. As Tara turned to leave, Stephen grabbed her wrist and told her to stop. He said, quote, You're not going anywhere. We're going to finish this conversation. End quote. At which point, Tara supposedly slapped him. So Stephen said he hit her back. This caused the woman to fall backwards and hit her head on the floor. Tara threatened to leave Stephen and take the children. She told him she would ruin his life. Stephen claimed that Tara said, quote, You're going to be fucking homeless. You're a piece of shit. End quote. At which point Stephen started choking her. He described that he could tell the moment she realized he wasn't stopping, and she grabbed his hand, but it was too late. He said he couldn't stop at that point. He knew he was going to prison, and he panicked. Once she stopped breathing, Stephen stood up and covered her face with either a dark gray t-shirt or a pair of boxer briefs. Hopefully they were clean. I mean, what an insult. I killed you and then tossed my dirty underwear on your face. Stephen then said he went downstairs and cried before sending a text message to Verena. He told her that Tara was going to be home late, so there was no reason for her to rush home. He explained that he went back into the bedroom and that Tara was dead, but even so, he put a belt around her neck. The detectives were confused as to why he would do that, and McLean asks him if she was still breathing, to which Stephen says no, but then why wrap a belt around her neck? Simple, he used it to drag her downstairs. Let that sink in. He wrapped a belt around her and used it to drag her by her neck down the stairs. The mother of his children, who were asleep in their bedrooms just down the hall. Once down the stairs, he dragged her into the garage and put her body in the back of Tara's white Isuzu Trooper. Just as he was finished getting Tara's body into the vehicle, covering it and closing the door, the garage door started opening and Verena was arriving home. Stephen said he raced back into the house, and as the au pair entered, he yelled, quote, Go! Just go! End quote. The startled Verena didn't understand why he was yelling at her, and that's when he said he thought she was Tara. He told Verena that he and Tara had gotten into a fight, and she stormed out. He thought she was Tara coming back in. Wow, that is some quick thinking for someone who claimed to have just panicked and killed someone because he didn't know what else to do. So, when he hit his wife and couldn't think of any other way to stay out of jail, he killed her. When Verena came home and he needed to stay out of prison, he was able to immediately come up with a plan to make Verena think the couple had gotten into a fight and Tara ran off. What convenient timing to get his wits back. He was able to immediately tell Tara a story that she was going back to the airport to fly to Puerto Rico. When the young woman asked him how he got the scratch on his nose, he told her that Tara had hit him before she left. After being thoroughly convinced that Tara had gotten angry and stormed off, Verena went to bed. Stephen was planning to dump the body the next night, but changed his mind. Sunday morning, Stephen called his father to verify that he was still out of town and wouldn't be back that day. Then he drove Tara's trooper to the machine shop. Stephen's account of what he did at the machine shop would make anybody realize he was definitely going to get caught eventually. He placed Tara's body on a piece of thin plastic on the floor of the shop and tried to use a handsaw made to trim tree branches to cut off her hand. That didn't work and he panicked, so he took all of the papers out of her briefcase and ran them through the shredder. Then he used a bandsaw to cut her work laptop up into pieces. This left tiny shards of glass and metal all over the place. 
While cleaning that mess up, he got a shard of glass in his finger and pulled it out with a pair of tweezers, effectively mixing his own blood in with the evidence. He put all the remnants of the laptop into a box and put her laptop bag, briefcase, and purse into a paper bag which he later tossed in a dumpster near the house where he grew up. Stephen considered using the bandsaw to cut up his wife's body but realized that would make too much of a mess. Instead, he took some blades for a hacksaw and wrapped a cloth around one end to use as a handle. I'm genuinely curious as to why he didn't just use the hacksaw, it literally having the sole purpose of being a handle for a hacksaw blade, but he clearly isn't the sharpest tool in this machine shop. After cutting up the body at every joint, the wrist, elbow, shoulder, ankle, knee, hip, and neck, he wrapped each piece in plastic and placed them in a Rubbermaid bin. The entire body plus rags and hacksaw blades fit into one bin and he loaded it in the back of the trooper. He loaded the rest of the evidence into the vehicle and cleaned up the shop before heading home. He spent the rest of Sunday at home, considering his next step. Stephen ended up leaving his house at 3 a.m. Monday morning and driving around in the trooper looking for somewhere to dump Tara's remains. He finally settled on an area in the Stony Creek Metro Park and pulled the SUV off of the roads near one of the trails. He brought a sled from home and used it to move the bin around. There was a light layer of snow on the ground at the time, but after Stephen dumped the remains, they had a major downpour of snow hiding the body parts from view. As he moved through the wooded area, the terrain started going downhill and the sled got away from him. He chased it about a hundred yards before he stopped it, but then it fell over and the remains spilled out. He took the torso and buried it in the snow and picked up the other parts and piled them onto the sled. He left the sled, the blue bin, and all the other evidence behind in the forest and went home. Later that same day, Stephen returned to the park in his jeep to try to hide the evidence. When he got back to the secluded area he had been just hours before, he dispersed the rest of the remains around the forest as well as the saw blades and a pair of shoes he had been wearing when he cut up the body. He put the bin in his vehicle and went home, leaving the sled out in the woods. He went back out to the area a third time on Tuesday because he wanted to try to hide the evidence better. When he got to the area where he had previously dumped the remains, he dug them up and put them back on the sled and took them further into the woods. He tried to hide the body parts in fallen trees. After he was satisfied with his new hiding spots, he went to Clinton Township and paid a bunch of parking tickets and a couple of speeding tickets that were outstanding. His explanation was that he was going to report his wife missing and he didn't want anything negative to come back when they pulled his record, which he knew they would because you always look at the spouse when a crime occurs. Then, Wednesday morning, was when he filed the missing persons report at the Macomb County Sheriff's Office. Stephen left the remains where they were for over a week, denying involvement, doing press interviews, and thinking his secret was well hidden in the woods at Stony Creek. When authorities announced on February 22nd that they would be searching the park, Stephen panicked and thought they would find the remains. Stephen told the detectives that he was going to get up in the middle of the night that night and go out to the park, but he didn't wake up. He said he had set an alarm, but it didn't go off or something. How odd is that? You've murdered your wife and you're afraid her remains are going to be found. So you need to get up so you can pick up your wife's dismembered torso, but you slept through your alarm. The fact that he easily fell asleep and was out cold, no problems, was really disturbing. 
So then the following night, he went to sleep and got up really early the next morning and ran to the park. His mom was staying at his house and he didn't want her to hear his car that early, so he went out on foot. He found the torso and carried it to a spot close to where he could park and hid it behind a tree. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Okay, so presents. Check. Decorations. Uh, check. Christmas clothes. Yep, check. The turkey. You forgot the turkey. Dunn Stores has extended opening hours over the Christmas season, so you'll have plenty of time to get all those little jobs done. Opening times may vary. Check your Dunn Stores app or dunnstores.com for more info. Dunn Stores. Make Christmas for everyone. Then he went back home, told his mom he was going out for coffee, and took the trooper out to the park to pick up the torso. Then he went back home and told his mother the coffee shop was too busy. That day, investigators searched the park and came up with nothing. Stephen drove to the machine shop later that day and put the torso on the roof of the office inside the shop. The shop was a big open area with high ceilings, but there were some offices built inside and they were only single story, so the roof of the offices were inside and used as storage. By this time, Stephen had put the torso in three or four layers of black plastic garbage bags. It was completely frozen, so he figured it would be safe to hide up on the roof of the offices for a little while. When Stephen learned that the authorities didn't find anything in the park, he thought he had gotten away with it. He left his wife's torso in the shop for most of the next week before deciding to go pick it up and dispose of it. Again. On Thursday, March 1st, Stephen went to the shop and picked up Tara's torso. He brought it back to his house where he put it in a green tote and stored it in the garage. He didn't know where to dispose of it yet, but he thought he was in the clear, so he pushed the bin out of the way until he could figure out where to dump it. On Friday, May 2nd, Stephen went to the shop for a few hours, and when he arrived back home, he was presented with a search warrant for his home. He wasn't under arrest, so he left the home, knowing that soon the investigators would open that green bin in the garage. As he was riding in the car with his friend, he knew he had to flee, so he told his friend he wanted to go visit his kids as a means of acquiring a vehicle. After recalling exactly what he had done to Tara, he started telling the detectives about his journey to Wilderness State Park. It starts with him driving aimlessly around the area. He stopped at a couple stores to pick up alcohol and the toy gun, as well as sleeping pills and razor blades. He also stopped at some hotels and tried to get a room for the night, but they were all booked up. There was apparently an event going on in the area. As he headed north, he began drinking the alcohol and took all of the Vicodin that he had stolen from his sister. He told the detectives that, by the time he arrived at the park, he felt like he was hallucinating. After he got to the park, he called his sister and told her where he was. He instructed her to call the authorities the following morning and tell them so they could recover his body. He told the investigators that he didn't want his body to rot in the woods. The audacity of this guy claiming he wanted to make sure his body was found so he didn't rot in the woods. 
He dismembered his wife and dumped her body parts in the woods to rot. Then he announces his aversion to having his body rot in the woods, seeing absolutely no irony in that. He told the detectives that he intended to walk to some cabins to die, but he ended up getting lost and couldn't find out where he was. He kept seeing people following him, but there wasn't really anybody there. He eventually dropped down near a tree, which was where the officers found him. Detective Kozlowski told Stephen which body parts they still hadn't found, and Stephen explained where they were. He even drew them a map of the area. Then the details of his relationship with Verena came up. Stephen told the detectives that he and Verena had become very close and even kissed once before February 9th. After February 9th, Verena was under the impression that Tara had left him, so they began sleeping in the same bed. According to Stephen, they never had intercourse, but there was other forms of sexual conduct happening between them. So, Stephen is trying to keep himself from being charged with first-degree murder. He wants to make it clear that the murder of Tara was a spur-of-the-moment thing and he didn't know what else to do, but then he quickly came up with a plan to pretend to be mad at Tara as Verena was coming home and the following day begins having a sexual relationship with her. His wife's body was still in the garage while he was moving on to the 19-year-old au pair. Classic. Before the criminal trial began, civil matters were happening in court. Tara's family was awarded $50 million in the wrongful death suit they filed against Stephen. A different judge also revoked Stephen's ability to control Tara's assets. Which makes sense. He killed her. Why should he benefit from her money? Of course, now that Stephen was in jail, the matter of who would take care of their children turned into a battle. Instead of considering what would be best for Lindsay and Ian, like mature adults, they fought with each other because neither wanted the other to have custody. Stephen's sister, Kelly, said in court that Stephen wanted her to take care of the children and didn't want them to live with Tara's sister, Alicia. Well, if you wanted a say in how your children were raised, you shouldn't have murdered their mother, chopped her up into pieces, and dumped her in the woods to rot. I think it's reasonable that once you murder a child's parent, you lose any rights to that child. Once Stephen's trial was over and he surrendered his parental rights, the judge would ultimately give primary custody to Alicia and Kelly would get visitation. Stephen was charged with first-degree murder. The judge ruled that there was enough evidence that Stephen did, with premeditation, murder Tara. His lawyer, a new one, filed a motion to exclude Stephen's confession, which was denied. When the trial began, Stephen pleaded not guilty to the first-degree murder of Tara. He did, however, change his plea to guilty for the charge of mutilation of a corpse. Once that plea was entered, Stephen's lawyer filed a motion to remove any mention of dismemberment from the trial. This was a last-ditch effort to try to make Stephen look like less of a monster than he was. The judge denied the motion because the dismemberment was also relevant to the murder charge since it was done in an effort to hide the body. The case against Stephen was strong. The district attorney, Eric Smith, laid out all the details. How Stephen murdered his wife and immediately began a sexual relationship with Verena. How he cut up her body and scattered it in the woods how he made calls to Tara's cell phone after he had murdered her in an attempt to throw off the investigation. He left angry messages on her voicemail, telling her she owed it to her children to call him back, knowing full well that she was dead. The defense tried to make the jury believe that Stephen didn't plan out the murder. He had lashed out in an impulsive moment of rage. 
Everything he did after that was the actions of a scared man trying to cover his tracks. The prosecution tried to use the emails with his ex-girlfriend, Dina Hardy, to show that he was pre-planning a life without Tara. Dina testified that she had known Stephen since they were kids and they had dated when they were in their early 20s. They stayed in touch after that, but in January of 2007, Stephen emailed her and she said the email was overly flirty. They began exchanging sexually explicit emails and talking on the phone up to 10 times a day. Then they made plans to go to dinner at the end of January. Dina said that Stephen told her he couldn't do it and she was angry but understood. She, of course, believed that he was saying that he couldn't cheat on his wife, but in reality, the DA pointed out that it was because he was in love with Verena. Verena was also brought back from Germany to testify in court. She told stories about Stephen telling her he wanted to have sex with her, and the time he popped his head into her room and told her he was going to take a shower, asking if she wanted to join him. On the last weekend that Tara was home before she was murdered, Stephen sent Verena an email telling her that he had been looking at her breasts and hoped that she was itchy. He explained that the term scratch that itch was his euphemism for sex. Then the following day, he sent her a text message asking if she wanted him to do her laundry to see if she was itchy. In the week leading up to Tara's murder, Stephen became more and more sleazy around his au pair. He began openly asking her to have sex with him, but she turned him down. He told her he loved her and then told her he was falling in love with her. She described that on the night of February 8th, the day before Tara flew back home for the last time, Stephen came into her room at bedtime and asked her to spend the night with him in his room. She said he took her hand and led her to the master bedroom where he performed oral sex on her. On February 9th, while Verena was out at a bar with her friends, Stephen sent her a text that said, quote, Tara is going to be home in a few minutes. You owe me a kiss. Make a noise when you get home so I can get my kiss. End quote. After Tara's murder, Stephen and Verena slept in the same bed together a few more times, but there was no more sexual activity. She said that Stephen told her multiple times that he was falling in love with her and wanted to know if she was falling in love with him. She answered, quote, yeah, maybe, end quote. Eh, that's a no. The agency that had placed Verena in the Grant home removed her on February 16th due to the missing person's investigation. She returned to Germany. When the prosecution was finished presenting their case, the defense asked the judge to dismiss the first-degree murder charge claiming the state had failed to prove premeditation. The judge said, quote, the defense erroneously believes that in order to establish premeditation, you need to have a to-do list that ends with kill my wife, end quote. The judge denied the request, and the defense presented their case, which consisted of a second autopsy that had been done. On cross, the medical examiner admitted that he based some of his opinions on media reports. The district attorney didn't do a good enough job convincing the jury that Stephen wanted to murder Tara that he wanted a new life with his teenage au pair, and Tara was an obstacle. Though it took nearly two days, the jury came back with a verdict of guilty of second-degree murder. Before Stephen was sentenced, it came to light that the children, Lindsay and Ian, had witnessed their father kill their mother on the night of February 9, 2007. The district attorney asked the judge to sentence Stephen to 50 to 80 years because of how badly he impacted his own children's lives not only taking away their mother, but having them witness her murder. The judge agreed and sentenced Stephen Grant to 50 to 80 years in prison. 
he would be eligible for parole in 2058. He'll be 88 years old. District Attorney Eric Smith said that he'll be 91 when Stephen is up for parole, and he will make sure that someone wheels him into that hearing so he can object to his parole. On June 13, 2008, Stephen's father, Al Grant, took his own life with a rifle in his garage. It turned out that Stephen's actions took more than one life. We talk a lot about the damage that's done directly to the victims of horrible crimes, but we have to remember that they affect so many other people negatively. They don't care about the life or lives they take, but they also don't care about the other lives. The parents, the children, siblings, the spouses. Those lives are also ruined by their selfish behavior. That's what truly makes them monsters. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online. The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. Pop quiz. What can you buy for $3.99? Not a latte, but for less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can get all your favorite music ad-free. While other streaming services jack up their prices, Live One's membership is only $3.99 per month, and you can lock in that price for a full year. Join now to get the best deal in music with zero ads, unlimited skips, and maximum audio quality. Get the music you love at a price that fits into your budget with Live One Plus. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Let's have a look at today's lineup. There's a strong Dunn Store's influence from top to bottom, starting with selected boxes of bottled beer and cider like Heineken and Boomers from just €18.72. Half-price Pringles are a very welcome inclusion indeed. 10 or 50 grocery vouchers doing their bit at the till as usual. All that's left to do now is enjoy the football. Dunn Store's always better value. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher can be used on next grocery shop of €50 or more. Voucher excludes alcohol. Please drink sensibly. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. 
the laundry? Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.